Finding Home is a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings. I'm Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archive Society. Welcome to Finding Home. It's a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Last episode, I talked about conflict in the mid-1870s between Bishop Richard Gilmore and some of the city's Irish community leaders. The bone of contention? Ostensibly Cleveland's annual St. Patrick's Day parade. Underlying the conflict, though, was a thorny question about identity. Certainly, St. Patrick's Day was a day for Irish pride. But was it the pride of an Irish Catholic venerating an Irish saint? The pride of an Irish American with roots in the old country but a future in the new one? Or the pride of a supporter of Irish nationhood? Many parade participants would have expressed all three kinds of pride interchangeably, Catholic, American, and Irish. But Bishop Gilmore felt that Catholic pride was the only legitimate reason for a Saints' Day parade. He accepted that Catholic pride might be seasoned with American patriotism. He knew that his flock had to balance being Catholic with being American. But the bishop did not think the parade and support for Irish nationhood should mix. And yet, as long as Ireland was not free, the question of nationhood would keep on resurging. It would swell again in the early 1880s, ratcheting the conflict with Bishop Gilmore to a new level. I spoke in an earlier episode about the Fenian Rebellion and how it collapsed after the Fenian invasion of Canada was stymied in 1866. A decade or so later, world economic circumstances, with help from the weather, forced the Irish into action again. I'm going to simplify the economics here. In the U.S., after the Civil War, railroads and related industries expanded, fueling economic growth. But speculative investors got ahead of themselves, driving too much expansion too quickly and with too little actual money behind them. Catastrophic fires in Chicago in 1871 and Boston in 1872 strained bank reserves further, leading to a bank panic in 1873. The panic precipitated a worldwide financial crisis that lasted at least through 1879, with after-effects through the 1890s. The resulting worldwide depression came to be called the Long Depression. Ireland was also weakened by a contracting economy, and as well experienced several successive bad weather and growing years beginning in 1878, especially in the West. Financial and climate pressures placed additional stress on an already dysfunctional system for land use in Ireland. Wealthy landlords owned most of the land in Ireland, while most of the population consisted of tenant farmers. The tenants often held long-term leases, but the landlords could evict them at will. Especially in the west of Ireland, the tenants subdivided their land to help out their married children, and more and more people were trying to support themselves on smaller and smaller plots of land. The tenants could barely produce what was needed for their own families to survive and weren't able to pay their rents. Landlords could make more money converting the land to grazing for sheep and cattle. 
As the impact of the poor harvests of 1878 and 1879 set in along the northwest coast of Ireland, a group called the Land League was formed to agitate for fairer rents. The more radical wing of the Land League, sometimes called the National Land League, led by Michael Davitt, wanted more than fair rent. Their slogan was, quote, the land of Ireland for the people of Ireland, end quote. News of near-famine conditions in the west of Ireland was already reaching Cleveland in 1878. Land League founder Michael David came to the U.S. that year to stir up support. David visited Cleveland in October of 1878. Cleveland's then-mayor, William Gray Rose, attended David's lecture and introduced him. Also seated on the speaker's platform were Martin A. Ferran, who had just finished his term as the city's prosecuting attorney, and Fenian organizer P.K. Walsh. Conditions worsened in the west of Ireland over the next several years. Cleveland's local daily newspapers reported news of famine and unrest in Ireland, as did P.K. Walsh in his weekly Celtic Index newspaper. In January 1880, it was announced that Charles Stuart Parnell would be coming to Cleveland at the end of the month. Born to a wealthy Anglo-Irish Protestant landowning family in County Meath, Parnell aligned himself with the cause of Irish nationalism and the emerging Home Rule League. He was elected to the English Parliament in 1875. He co-founded the Irish National Land League in 1879, serving as its first president. Cleveland pulled out all the stops for the charismatic Charles Stuart Parnell. Father Thomas Thorpe convened a planning meeting. The committee members were a who's who of Cleveland Irish. They included leaders of the groups that Bishop Gilmore deemed un-Catholic. William Gleason, longtime officer of the Irish Literary and Benevolent Association, was elected chairman of the Parnell Committee. Committee assignments went to Fenians Thomas Lavin, Patrick Smith, Michael Mooney, and Luke Brennan, as well as to the up-and-coming Martin A. Ferran, leader of the Emmett Guard Militia. Also present were leaders of the Catholic Central Association, the group that Bishop Gilmore formed to bring parade planning under diocesan control. Lawyer T.H. Graham, Catholic Central Association president, was elected secretary of the Parnell Committee. Temperance activists William Manning and Patrick Reedy took assignments, as did less overtly aligned folks such as undertaker Thomas Gallagher and iron foundry owner Thomas Patterson. Bishop Gilmore was even named an honorary vice president of the reception committee, along with numerous city officials. Shortly after Parnell's inspiring visit, William Gleason warned the ILBA members that they should start reading up on Irish history and prepare to become what he called Irish revolutionists. P.K. Walsh fumed at an ILBA meeting that, quote, some people consider this organization to be a sin, and we are told we must not organize, that we must pray and abide God's time for our freedom, end quote. Well, instead of praying, Walsh, William Gleason, Patrick Smith, and others began organizing Land League branches in Cleveland. Swelling the ranks of the local Land League chapters in Cleveland were recent immigrants. They were especially arriving from County Mayo, fleeing the very conditions that prompted the Land League movement in Ireland. Bishop Gilmore issued a pastoral letter launching an Irish relief fund even before Parnell's visit. On January 10, 1880, the Plain Dealer reported that the, quote, 
pastoral of Bishop Gilmore was the first, we believe, issued in this country for the relief of the poor in Ireland. End quote. The plain dealer credited the bishop's foresight, reporting a collection of $7,787.93. The plain dealer added, quote, The large contribution also speaks well for the liberality and charity of the Catholic people of this diocese. End quote. A few months later, the Catholic Central Association entertained a motion to cancel the St. Patrick's Day Parade that year and apply, and I quote, the money usually spent for the 17th of March parade to the relief of the destitute in Ireland, end quote. The motion was, quote, promptly carried without discussion and without a dissenting vote, end quote. The 1881 parade was also subsequently canceled for the same purpose. The parade cancellations and the emphasis on charitable famine relief might have seemed to diffuse tensions with Bishop Gilmore. However, the bishop was becoming uneasy as news came from Ireland of increasingly confrontational tactics towards landowners. Rent strikes were reported and boycotts of folks who were seen as collaborating with the landlords. The landlords retaliated with evictions, and the tenants responded with violent acts of reprisal torching the houses and property of the landlords. The cycle of violence was escalating. Bishop Gilmore undoubtedly knew that Clevelanders were speaking out in support of armed insurrection in Ireland. At an ILBA meeting on March 15, 1880, P.K. Walsh said, and I quote, All strength comes from the right arm. God endowed us with strength, and if we assist ourselves, most assuredly, God will assist us. We are all agents of our own free will endowed with reason and understanding, and with us lies the power of carrying out the will of the Creator. It will not be long until the Irish people strike for liberty or die in the attempt. End quote. By February 1882, Bishop Gilmore felt compelled to give a lecture about the Land League movement. The bishop professed strong sympathy for the cause of Irish freedom, but he, like many bishops in Ireland and America, strongly disapproved for the radical Land League support for rent strikes and even rebellion. Gilmore insisted in his lecture that home rule, achieved through the ballot box, must be the way to independence. Like other bishops in the United States, he worried that the Land League's more extreme tactics of violent intimidation and destruction of property could also be used to address social problems in America. The same constricted economy that was pressuring tenant farmers in the west of Ireland was keeping wages low for factory workers and miners in the U.S. In fact, Irish immigrants laboring in the coal mines of Pennsylvania were using such tactics against mine owners in the mid-1870s, operating under the name of the Molly Maguires. The bishops feared that violent labor disputes would spread to the industrialized cities where many Irish immigrants had settled. In Cleveland, Martin Ferran was contemplating a run for Congress, backed by the Knights of Labor, a federation formed to demand an eight-hour workday. Gilmore must have feared that the violence of the coal fields could spread to Cleveland. Bishop Gilmore saw the Land League as yet another un-Catholic organization that challenged the Church's leadership. He excluded the Land League chapters from parade planning and attending Mass in the Cathedral on St. Patrick's Day. However, the bishop saved outright condemnation for the Ladies' Land League, which was formed in Cleveland in May of 1882. According to diocesan historian Father George Hauck, and I quote, 
Bishop Gilmore felt that the men organized the Ladies' Land League, thinking the bishop would not dare speak against women, end quote. But the bishop did dare to speak against the Ladies' Land League, calling it unwomanly. The Ladies' Land League was led by Irish-born Mary Rowland. Very little can be reconstructed about her, unfortunately. In the 1870 census, Mary, age 22, was listed with her widowed mother and six siblings. All seven siblings, all young adults, were listed as born in Ireland, most during the famine years. It is not known when the family came to Cleveland. In 1870, four of Mary's brothers were working as laborers on Cleveland's iron ore docks, while a fifth brother was working at a foundry. No occupations were identified for Mary or her sister Sarah, though Mary would later speak of working for a living. By 1880, the household consisted of Mary, her sister, and one brother. According to a newspaper notice in 1882, Mary had been a young Fenian supporter during the 1860s, so it seems the family would have been here by the mid-1860s. She must have had strength of character because she was elected president of the Ladies' Land League at its first meeting. It would also seem that she had some schooling because she defended the group vigorously in speeches and in print. By early June 1882, the conflict had escalated to the point that Bishop Gilmore decided that he was going to excommunicate any woman who persisted in participating in the Ladies' Land League. Both Gilmore's Bull of Excommunication and Mary Rowland's response were printed side by side in The Plain Dealer on June 3, 1882. Gilmore proclaimed, among other things, and I quote, When the question is squarely raised on choosing between female modesty and pretended patriotism, then I place myself on the side of female modesty. And when it comes to defending the female modesty of my flock as against the brazen unwomanliness of female politicians, I accept the gauge and will see that no Catholic woman within my diocese shall turn herself into a brawling politician. End quote. Rollins' response was equally impassioned. I will take the liberty of quoting her at greater length because it is too seldom that women of that time and place were quoted in a newspaper at all. Rowland asked at first, and I quote, We are to be excommunicated for what? Because we meet here to discuss the rights of Ireland and not religion? The church which our forefathers died for is now to be used as a weapon to crush us down? End quote. She concluded by saying, and I quote, I suppose he wants us to remain at home like wallflowers. He must remember that we all have to work for a living. He intimates that every woman here is a virago. Shame that we should be called thus. As for the threat of excommunication, I think we are able to stand that. I have faith in the Irish people. No one can be excommunicated for loving their country. All he thinks it necessary for the Irish people to do is to subscribe and build churches for him. They must not have a country. No, that is heresy. Let us then stand firm and go quietly about our work, doing all we can for Ireland. End quote. Cleveland Land League supporters, both men and women, insisted that they would not back down. Patrick Smith even named a tugboat after Mary Rowland. The Land League went ahead with a summer picnic planned by the ladies for June 15th. They invited a priest from Buffalo to deliver an address at the picnic, infuriating Bishop Gilmore further. Mary Rowland was mentioned as reading a paper of, quote, length and force at a meeting in September of 1882. 
Then she disappears from view. Several years later, in 1889, she was mentioned in a lawsuit initiated by officers of the Men's Land League, seemingly to recover funds from an abandoned bank account. But then she disappeared from view again and can't be found in subsequent census, marriage, or death records in Cleveland. Despite the hubbub and fanfare of the excommunication, it's not clear that the excommunication was enforced or ever formally lifted. When land leaguer P.K. Walsh died in 1886, Bishop Gilmore considered denying him a church burial. Walsh had traveled the U.S. organizing land league chapters in other cities, but it was rumored that he was also organizing for the even more radical and secretive group, the Clan Nagale. Though Gilmore let Walsh's burial go forward, he did prevent the cathedral choir from singing at Walsh's funeral. The ancient order of Hibernians attended the funeral as a group, and the land leaguers publicly thanked them for it. The land leaguers raised funds to erect a monument to Walsh at St. Joseph's Cemetery. Sadly, all that's left today of a life-sized bronze sculpture of P.K. Walsh is the pedestal, inscribed with the words, and I quote, a patriotic citizen, an honest man, a true and faithful soldier, end quote. The full story of the Hibernians, the Clan Nagale, and Bishop Gilmore is a story for another day. For today, I hope you'll remember the names of Mary Rowland, P.K. Walsh, William Gleason, Patrick Smith, and Martin Ferran. At a time of economic uncertainty, they promoted Irish nationhood and the dignity of Irish people, instilling pride in their native country on the part of Cleveland's immigrant community. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret Lynch. Have a great day. You've been listening to Finding Home, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. Find out more about the Society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.